Today's guest is Dr. Charles Ryan. Dr. Ryan is an oncologist, and he's also the author of one of my favorite books from 2018, The Virility Paradox. It's a book about testosterone and has all these interesting studies and understandings of the male sex hormone testosterone and how it affects behavior, how it affects relationships, how it affects the human brain, whether you're male or female. And it was an incredibly interesting book. Um, it made me think a lot about masculinity and helped me ground a lot of the more abstract principles around masculinity into like very objective science, which I think is huge given the, the cultural discussions right now. This recording was actually done a couple months ago for um, my mastermind group. So you might hear me reference some things that are from some time ago. Um, this was an awesome conversation. If you do want to be a part of the live discussions, you can go to masculineunderground.com. There's some free stuff there. Um, you can also get access to uh, the recordings as soon as they come out and get an opportunity to be on with uh, on for future podcasts live. So you can check it out out at masculineunderground.com. Without further ado, this is episode 032, Dr. Charles Ryan, The Virility Paradox. You're listening to the Rwando Podcast, Perpetual Orgasm, Infinite Play. Please subscribe on iTunes and enjoy the show. I loved your book. It was, uh, I found a, a huge applications in my work and personal development. There's all this Talk about masculinity, a lot of abstractions, a lot of cultural discussion, arguments and whatnot. And not only did it um, shed light on like the reality of testosterone and masculinity, um, we gave you some suggestions and, I, and I've been very excited to speak to you about uh, this book ever since I read it a few months ago. So yeah, thanks so much for being on. Great. I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm glad you found the book. I'm glad you liked it. How did you find it, by the way? I'm just uh, always so curious. Art of Man. I'm sorry? Uh, the Art of Manliness. Oh, yeah. Manliness podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I think I Good. can the audio later. And, uh, I guess this may be in May. When, did, when was the book released? Uh, I was released in late February. I think I did The Art of Manliness probably in uh, April or May, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So uh, I suggested everyone in the group, there's about 35 guys to, to read it. I mean, th I think some of them did. Um, could you explain what the Virility Paradox is? Like, why the title? What does that mean? Sure. Yeah, so the the thing, the idea that struck me the most about uh, the paradox or about writing this book in general was that we have this uh, molecular system in our body fueled by testosterone uh, that does us quite a bit of good. I mean, it produces masculinity, and I think we could all say that um, it has done us some good in terms of our evolution and body strength and you know our ability to to. To, to do certain tasks, but the paradox is that that comes with a cost. And, and I really, uh, you know, kind of came to it from the standpoint of reading a little bit of this literature that uh, men who take testosterone or women who are, who are given testosterone in experimental situations may in fact, uh, you know, lose certain um, aspects of, of, uh, of what, might, what we might call healthy personality uh, traits, uh, empathy, and things like that. And of course, I come to this not as a behavioral scientist, uh, not as a psychologist. I'm an oncologist. I treat cancer for a living. and um, But I treat prostate cancer, as, as I detail in the book. And the, fun, the fundamental way that we treat the disease is by lowering testosterone levels. And it was always striking to me that over the years, um, I, I thought, you know, isn't this interesting that to treat this very common cancer, prostate cancer, we deprive men of the most fundamental fuel of, of manliness or the most fundamental uh, chemical associated with virility and with uh, even with our evolution. Um, and, and nobody to my sort of knowledge had written about sort of this existential moment. And I used to call that kind of an existential moment for our patients where, you know, you're 65 years old, you've lived your life, you've had testosterone and a libido and strength and manliness and virility and you shave every day and all these things. And then you get this cancer and we just take all that away. Uh, sort of almost like, an e like, oh, isn't this easy to do? And, and the paradox also was that some of the men that I would talk to as we treated them with hormonal therapy, and what I mean by that, of course, is we lower their testosterone levels by 90%. As I talked to men, many of them and their wives and their, their, their partners would say, you know, they've become a softer person. They've become nicer. They've become um, less uh, uh, less hostile and things like that. And so I thought that was kind of paradoxical. Of course, that doesn't happen to everybody, and that's the challenge. And uh, 
And, and that's the uh, interesting thing about treating treating humans in a clinical context is you you over the years you get to see the full spectrum. Uh, and um, and I, I you know as you probably saw in the book I. I try to not say this is how it is for everybody, but this is how it is for some, and I think this is a valuable life lesson. Yeah, what, what I found so interesting um, was that uh, when, when in my work, when people reach out to me, when men reach out to me about dating goals or entrepreneurial goals, which is mainly the two things I talk to about with guys, they're basically uh, traits that they want to develop that we associate with higher testosterone. Like they want to be more attractive and they want to be more yeah. driven. And here is this, um, and then culturally, we have a lot of pressure in recent years to to dampen these traits in men. And you brought right. up uh, basic uh, clinical studies that say, yeah, a lot of our um, associations with masculine traits are directly related to the testosterone hormone. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah. But it's also it's also I think that uh, um, with regards to to men and their sort of. Uh, Seeking personal improvement and in, in personal development, the kind of work that you do, um, I guess the idea that I would get across is that there is a sort of a sweet spot, right? There's um, there are these traits that are associated with testosterone and virility and other things that are um, desirable, um, but um, I think our society has gotten to the point where I don't know if it's our society. I think it's more just humanity has gotten to the point where um, we too much testosterone you know, can be a, an undesirable trait. Um, and I say this from sort of the evolutionary standpoint as well, because, you know, we don't, testosterone helped us to get to be strong and fast and good hunters and to suppress our empathy so that we can kill and, and provide for our villages and for provide for our people. I'm talking about over the course of evolution. And a lot of those traits are kind of gone, like the survival, the survival and strength aspects of testosterone that were needed to keep a society going don't don't really exist as much anymore um and so now that we live in cities and we 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 live in groups and uh and really it's about getting together getting along with other people and um uh and having empathy and understanding people and not necessarily being physically the strongest so that you can kind of get pushed over the edge by your testosterone a little bit um and you know that's more of a that's more of a feeling based on the aggregate of the data than sort of, you know, full on proven data. Um, and I think that one of the other things about the test about the about, about testosterone that I come back to, and I mentioned it a few times in the book, is I'm a little skeptical of some of this science too, you know. And um, and some of the the behavioral science that's been done with testosterone experimentation and looking at the androgen receptor is sort of um, it's sort of directionally true. Uh, you know, uh, but not not necessarily uh, cause an effect like a true, uh, true uh, like a pr truly proven scientific uh, uh, hypothesis would be. Um, and so, you know, in my view, as a non-behavioral scientist, kind of looked at all this in aggregate and said, "Yep, we probably don't need to be as we probably need to be more empathetic. We don't need to be as strong. We don't need to be." As this and as, this, as 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 much this or as much that as we as we needed to be in our evolution. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. We don't need to kill because we could buy our meat at Whole Foods, uh, kind of. Thing. Right. But but what's what's interesting, and this is like digging into like some of the common uh, or popular anthropological theories right now on how um, pre agriculture we lived in more feminist feminine feminine societies that yeah. More of this empathy was more important. Male dominance was less important because we we're all in these egalitarian groups. So now, right. many thousands of years later, we're kind of back to that. We've connected with social media, perhaps, as this large tribe where men no longer need to be testosterone fueled. But there's this like 10,000 year period, perhaps, or maybe a few thousand years where it really was a dominant strategy to be high testosterone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that, uh, is that, um, we talk about high testosterone versus low testosterone and all of this, but uh, keep in mind that, um, you know, back in those generations and back in our evolution, uh, for the most part, our bodies were starving a lot of the time. Uh, we were chronically, in, in, you know, infected and uh, sort of had, you know, we weren't health, our bodies weren't particularly healthy. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things that I found really fascinating, I didn't know this until I started writing this book. Is this idea of the challenge hypothesis that comes up in in anthropology and in, in an animal, the animal kingdom, where 
you know, you take a bird, for example, and uh, a bird will spend part of its year sort of feeding and breeding and part of its year, um, you know, migrating. And during the times of migration, their cortisol levels go way up because that's a survival hormone. And that is a uh, uh, needed to do all that birds need to do. And what happens is that when that goes up, breeding hormones go down. And then birds, it's not testosterone, it's DHEA. But those levels go down to zero. Then the bird comes somewhere, it's springtime, they feed, they, you know, they get their worms or whatever it is. And they, uh, uh, their testosterone levels go up and they breed. And that's a very simple sort of observation. But what it ties to humans in that, you know, um, the anthropologists tell us that our, our ancestors, when they were in this sort of chronic starvation and survivorship mode, yes, they needed testosterone to survive, but they also were, were in many cases kind of ill all the time and, and the testosterone was suppressed. So that testosterone would spike when they had a successful hunt or when they uh, were in uh, moments or times of greater security. Um, and that's when they would breed, just like the bird model. Fast forward to the 21st century. Well, there's not a lot of, you know, those of us in North America and in the better part of the development world, developed world, we're not um, starving. We're not, those of us who aren't starving are not chronically infected and things like that. We are walking around with earlier puberties, higher testosterone levels, and then we're supplementing it in later in life. And so what happens is we get a higher testosterone level for a more chronic period of time uh, over the course of history. And, and I talked to this anthropologist uh, who, I, um, who I quoted, the book Ben Trumbull, fascinating guy. You should look up his work because he, he studies testosterone in, in these tribes in the Amazon. But he says, you know, testosterone level is higher than it's ever been in humanity because we're well-nourished uh, and, um, and we're able to, to uh, we're, we're not quite suppressing it with sort of this uh, chronic stress that, that a harsh environment would, would cause it to be. Mm, that's interesting. So we have like more, way more than, we, we have more uh, ammo than we need for this challenge that never comes up. Right, right. And that's why we have, for example, prostate cancer and, and enlarged prostates as men age. What Ben did is he goes, he, this is great. He went down to this tribe in the Amazon called the Chimane, which I write about. And um, I could have written a lot more about them and maybe should have, but they, um, they live along the Amazon. They're, hunt, they're kind of like hunter gatherers. Uh, and they have parasitic infections and they, they don't eat a lot of meat and uh, this kind of thing. And he went down and he measured their prostates. And uh, what he found is that they, they basically, you know, a North American man, the average testosterone level, like let's say at like age 30 is probably about 350, maybe 400. They have an average testosterone level of about 200 to 250, so about half. And he went down, he measured their prostates and he found that they don't, the older men in this tribe don't have enlarged prostates. And the reason why North American men do is because we have this sort of, the prostate is chronically stimulated by the long, uh, persistent elevation of testosterone that begins at puberty. So anyway, the, to the extent that the prostate is sort of a surrogate of our brains being chronically stimulated by testosterone, it tells us a little bit about the difference between how we live today and how our ancestors lived. Uh, so would it be too much of a jump? I, I guess this is really in your wheelhouse uh, to say if people, if men faced more stress or more challenges, they'd, they'd reduce their risk of prostate cancer? Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I would say that, uh, you know, now we know that the stress and challenges of high cortisol and other things can have other uh, health problems associated with it. But um, I guess I would say that I would, I would turn it around. I would say it's not so much about the health. Uh, it's not so much about the challenges like it is in the birds. Uh, because we're a little bit more complex biologically. It's not like when our cortisol goes up, our testosterone necessarily goes down. Our bodies don't have to be that efficient. In the, in the bird kingdom, they have to be that efficient. Cortisol and testosterone are basically made from the same molecular precursor. So if you're a starving bird and you need that cortisol to survive, you just have less raw material for making the testosterone or the DHEA. So I guess in, in a way, you're right, like a, a chronically stressed individual would have a potentially lower testosterone. And we see this in people who have, you know, uh, diabetes and are obese and other things where uh, their testoster testosterone levels tend to run a little bit lower throughout life. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that if you 
uh, take a healthy, you know, 30 year old man with a normal testosterone level. Let's say something tragic happens. He's in an automobile accident and he is put on a breathing machine and he's put in an ICU uh, and, um, and he's fighting for his life, right? His, just like the bird, his testosterone level will go down. His cortisol level will go up to fight off, to fight that stress. And so this is another thing uh, Ben Trumbull, the anthropologist, has done. Is they stu- they've actually done this. Is they've studied people with acute life-threatening illness, looked at their testosterone levels, and saw that they go down. It's interesting. In my new job, just as an aside, I was talking to one of my colleagues who is doing a study of um, people who go through bone marrow transplant, a very stressful treatment for leukemia. And she said that they were they did a study where they were looking at hormone levels and they found that the men's testosterone levels went down during bone marrow transplantation. And I said, well, that's another example of sort of, uh, you know, uh, a situation where an acute illness is going to affect that. So if you just compound that over time, and you think about somebody leading a life of chronic illness, uh, chronic poor health, other things, uh, then yes, they may have lower testosterone levels, uh, potentially as a result, lower likelihood of of uh, of uh, prostate enlargement or prostate cancer, but I don't think we've ever I don't think we've proven that. Yeah, seems like yeah, a strange way to go about avoiding. <laughs> That's right. But actually, before your book, most of what I read about DHEA um, comes from comes from the strength training world. Like, um, yeah, familiar Bullock in the Olympic strength coach speaks a lot about how if a if a man wants to gain the benefits of testosterone, he really needs to cut out um, any stressors from his life. And he was yeah. extensively say same project, but obviously the ratio of testosterone. Um, one thing you mentioned just now um, with the, the hunts and stuff, because uh, one of the most interesting things I found from your book was the winner effect. And I was like, oh, yeah. this is like a life hack. If you could just, and I, with all my clients now and with myself too, I, I'm like, oh, how can I perceive winning? Because it seems so subjective, like with the, um, the example you gave with the Italy and Brazil. Yeah, uh, like the fans had the spike, even though they're just watching the game, and they just chose right. to be a fan of one of the. Um, this might be a bit of a jump, but can we just use this as a way to spike our testosterone if we yeah. have games? Oh, you mean like artificial? That's a good thing. That's a good question. Um, I think that if you were to, I think the the winner effect comes from a true feeling of, um, uh, you know, it's 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 a feedback almost from. This, the the cognitive aspects of winning, um, and I think that if you were to be in a game where you knew you were going to win because it was rigged, it probably wouldn't work, right? Um, but but I mean, this is maybe why we like to compete, right? Men all like to compete about things because we like winning, and winning makes us feel good on a lot of different levels. And I think testosterone is part of that. I doubt that testosterone is the sole reason why we feel good when we win. I mean. You know, one of the challenges in writing this book is I really focused on one molecule. Um, and things like the winner effect are probably driven by the relationship between dopamine and testosterone and what happens in, in you know, very specific uh, circuits in the brain. But I do write a little bit in there how the dopamine circuits for reward are, are connected to, if you will, the testosterone circuits in the brain. Um, and so I think your point about the winner effect is a good one, which is it, it explains why we like success uh, and and how sometimes success can fuel upon success. Um, and in terms of, you know, a life coaching, that's a really interesting question. Like, how do we harness what we know about the winner effect uh, in terms of a life coaching strategy? It's a good question. Yeah, because like a lot of, um, I don't know if you're familiar with BJ Fogg's uh, stuff in Stanford about um, motivation, like he, he made popular the idea of, um, it's futile to try to build a flossing habit if you've ever flossed, but commit to flossing one tooth a day and you'll like start to enjoy it and you'll, you'll yeah. create a reward circuit and eventually you'll floss all your teeth without needing willpower. Um, so that's kind of like a, almost a miniature version of the winner effect. Yeah. I, it's so interesting because I, I grew up as a huge New York Jets fan, but they lose a lot and I would always be depressed Monday morning and I just stopped watching football a few years ago. So like, I feel so bad <laughs> the next morning. I was like, why, why am I doing this to myself? Let me not. And it, it was like, oh, my testosterone was probably dropping. I, I watched, I was, I grew up near, I, I'm from here from Wisconsin and grew up near Green Bay and I was a big Green Bay Packer fan, but I'm 48 years old. And so when I was a kid in the 1970s, uh, they were horrible, uh, right? The Packers would go four and 12 and just were a terrible team. 
And, uh, and, and, but I remember when they got good in the 1990s, uh, it was this huge rush of like, oh, I've been, I've been a loser my whole life and now we're winners, you know, (laughs) it's funny how much we put into football, but, um, but, um, but so you, you went the other direction and you basically said, I don't need this negative stimulus in my life. I'm going to give up watching the jets because it was not bringing me the, not bringing me the winner effect that I needed. Yeah, but and it makes sense why you know people become diehard fans of anything, right? Because they they uh, for whatever reason chosen to make this matter to them, and it, it actually affects their hormones apparently. Right. Um. Uh. And then I'm also thinking of like little kids, because like it was interesting from a developmental perspective in that um when someone is good at sports as a kid, we assume they're going to grow up more confident. Um. As as opposed to a kid always getting picked last, he probably doesn't care about competition. And this is more anecdotal thing, you know, uh, I don't know if there's been studies on this exactly, but uh, when you see someone who's like a very competitive stockbroker, for instance, you can yeah. almost assume I won at sports is in Little League and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a great book on this called um, The Hour Between Dog and Wolf. And uh, it's written by a guy named Ben Coates. And I quote some of his work. He's the one who did the stuff that I quote in the book on the stock market. Uh, traders and the winter effect and how when he looked when they looked at the 11 a.m testosterone level and that these these traders would you know they would be in and out of stocks all afternoon but what he found was that the 11 a.m testosterone level predicted their success over the course of the day because he was basically saying that those who started out um uh with an early day you know first couple hours of trading got a little boost from their from their winter effect it actually the the spike in testosterone he alleges um drove them to take more risks in the later part of the day which actually helped them in that business of day trading the other thing that he uh he did was uh looked at he did this thing with the 2d to 40 ratio you know with the finger length that you read about and he found that those who had a more uh testosterone driven finger length pattern made higher year-end bonuses than those who had the lower ones so that was his sign or, or sort of a, um, uh, you know, demonstrating that, uh, that, that, that this prenatal, the pre-birth testosterone exposure may in fact drive this. And this could be, you know, this issue about winter effect may be less important to the scenario that you describe of the kids who are on the little league team who go on to become stock brokers or whatever. Um, those are probably kids who had a high degree of fetal testosterone and that their brains were wired even before they were born to be primed for the winner effect right so it's not that their brains were primed for them to become super competitive it was that their brains were primed for them to get get a reward out of the winner effect so that when then they're seven years old and 10 years old and they're doing little league that they uh that they get more of a boost from that that victory other kids you know, I wasn't a particularly competitive kid. I like I played on teams and I liked winning, but I was never viewed as an ultra competitive person. I was, you know, as compared to some of my friends who I played on teams with. And so I think there's just a spectrum on that point as well. But that much of that could have been driven by the prenatal testosterone exposure. Can you say a little bit about the virility triad? So I have a few questions on that. Yeah. So the virility triad was basically something I made up, which is as I read through all of this, I found that there were really three components to how uh, researchers and others have linked testosterone um, and it's, I, you know, I call it a system, which is, I think we need to think about it as a system. It's a, uh, and there were three main components of the system, the testosterone level in the blood, the androgen receptor, and the degree to which the androgen receptor is responsive to testosterone, and the prenatal testosterone exposure, which, which sort of uh, you know, in a way, sort of hardwired the brain in particular uh, for that response. And so, um, uh, you know, I had, I, I just was reading about these three components, and you'd read one paper that said testosterone does this, and you'd read one paper that says androgen receptor does that, and one paper that said, um, uh, you know, prenatal testosterone does this, and nobody had sort of linked them all together. And I think that that was, um, uh, you know, something that just came across as a as a way to to try to get the idea across that we're not just talking about a hormone we're talking about a whole system um and it is interesting um 
there is there was one paper for example where i i did find uh a triangulation of those effects for example and it was a study where they looked at um they looked at uh men with anxiety disorders and they looked at um testosterone levels in the androgen receptor and looked at how they interacted and um the uh they found that the men with the short the shorter or sorry the longer cag repeats on their androgen receptor which meant that they had these if you will bigger and heavier androgen receptors that were less responsive to the testosterone but they found that men who had these slow androgen receptors and low testosterone levels had more anxiety than men who had faster androgen receptors and higher testosterone levels. Um, and I found that very interesting because they're able to sort of connect those two. And one of the things that we're going to be doing in my own research now with prostate cancer patients is we're going to actually be looking at the relationship of, uh, of men's cognitive abilities as they receive hormonal therapy for prostate cancer. And we're going to look at the androgen receptor and we're going to look at, of course, their testosterone levels. And then we're going to look at their cognitive effects. We're kind of going to, we're, we, and, and even in my own oncology sort of research program, we're going to look at how these things interact. Uh, what's exactly the connection with anxiety? Like, how does that affect anxiety? Yeah. So it, it just, it, it's, it, you know, it's how to make that leap between anxiety and testosterone is, is not really fully worked out. But, you know, thinking about, um, uh, about this and uh, that men who had low testosterone are not necessarily more they looked at a group of guys who had um anxiety disorders and i think they compared them to men who did not have a diagnosed anxiety disorder uh and what they found was that the and then there's a way that you can score the severity of your anxiety disorder and what they found was that the the men who had the greatest anxiety or the greatest problem from their anxiety disorder were those who had slower androgen receptors and lower testosterone levels. So just flipping that around logically, men who are have their testosterone system a little bit more ramped up, either through higher levels or through faster receptors, uh, may be able to sort of calm their anxieties. Or I think of anxiety, one of the, if you think about what is the opposite of anxiety, it's maybe not calmness, maybe it's confidence. And, uh, and, and so it's possible that it's just that the higher, the men with higher testosterone levels, faster androgen receptors, uh, may be more confident individuals as a result of that, or that may be a contributor to more confidence. Hmm. Yeah, this is uh, maybe a silly aside, but, um, I was reading, I was listening to your book on, on, uh, audio while I was in Bali and I was playing on an ultimate Frisbee team and sometimes you win, <laughs> sometimes you lose. And of course, this is all just completely subjective. I'm not my testosterone but yeah. I'm trying to see how my behavior would change on days that I lost um, and like what would am I more affected by am I more anxious today am I more affected by certain things am I less able to handle my daily challenges um, I don't know I, I would love to actually check my testosterone regularly but I don't know where to get such uh, testosterone strips yeah so so uh, it's funny you said it because there was a uh, there was a company that I came across uh, a link where they had this you could do uh, this test strip where you could actually do just exactly what you want to do which was um uh spit i think on a strip and then put it into a little machine and then it would tell you not only your testosterone but it tell you some other tests or you have to mail it in i forget um but it was a uh like a startup and i don't know whatever happened to them but they were basically uh trying to propose that we should do just that um and i, I think it's a little bit more complex than that you know, your ultimate Frisbee example is an interesting one. And I, I, I think it's interesting that you were thinking about that as you go through your day. And I can see that because, you know, think about it, something good happened, you do something in the morning where you get a lot of validation, you know, you get good news, you have some projects accepted, you make a bonus, or you, you know, compete in a tennis match, and you win, you generally feel better throughout the course of the day, I find. Um, and, uh, um, and so there probably is an effect. But I would all I would also argue that a ultimate frisbee game in Bali is probably a relatively low stakes event <laughs> in your life, right? <laughs> and so, if you were to think of this, if you were to ratchet up the stakes on that, um, you know, and 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 where the competition had more, uh, if if you will, value in your life, like it meant more, you were going to make more money, or whatever was something was going to happen, 
as a result of this, um, you know, you might have had, you might experience a greater winter effect. The, the World Cup soccer example, which was a while ago, you know, that was the World Cup and this was Brazil and Italy. And these are like the two countries with the, that were the whole country, the, the most rabid soccer fans in the, in the world. And, and they went to a, the experience, the researchers went to a, um, a facility, a bar, I think it was where, where the fans were aggregating. So that was a, a time and a place where even though it was a soccer game being played by other people, it was a high stakes game for all of those involved in watching it. Yeah, actually I had one specific example where, um, a business deal of mine fell through because it was it was actually incompetence on my part. So I felt like my ego was bruised. It was like, uh, and I I noticed that day in the gym I was weaker, and I was wondering, okay, oh, this is a, the loser effect. Like I was so clear that it, that was uh, the case. Yeah, you know, there's so many variables. Yeah, there's a lot of variables, but it's kind of fun to think about that. You know, it, on the on the flip side, or getting to the the paradox point of this, um, there uh, there were two, and getting to football. There were there are two examples that I can think of where winning was tied to negative consequences, and there's one where there was a, a researchers did, and I think I quote this in the book. Um, researchers looked at the the uh, Washington D.C. reports of domestic violence. This was many years ago, and then they went back and they looked at Sunday night reports of domestic violence, and then they looked at whether the Washington Redskins had won or lost on that particular Sunday. And they found that on Sundays when the Washington Redskins had won, there was, a, there was an increase in domestic violence reports. Um, and that was just, you know, one city, one report, but kind of interesting. And then there was a, uh, a, a, a paper, uh, uh, it was relatively recently, a couple of years ago, and they looked at colleges in Texas. And I think it wasn't just one school, it was many schools in Texas. And they looked at domestic violence, uh, I guess you'd call it uh, campus sexual assaults. And they looked at campus sexual assaults as a function of the football team. And the, uh, if the team was playing a home game, uh, sexual assaults went up relative to if they're playing an away game. And if they're playing a home game where they won, the sexual assault reports were higher than in the other two scenarios. And so I point this out as, a, as yet another paradox of the winner effect. Like, why you know if 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 on a on a Balinese beach you're playing ultimate frisbee and that gives you a little feeling of of euphoria and goodness that's a great thing, but if you think about you know for some people uh, that winter effect can be a little bit um, a little bit too much and kind of push them over the edge. I mean think about you know how many years was it where the NCAA basketball you know the game, final game would be played and then the campus of whatever college would win they would go like light cars on fire you know. <laughs> And so that happened, I know, at Michigan when I was there, and it's happened at a few other places where there are, you know, people just get a little crazy on college campuses after their team wins. So. Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I'm curious about the, you know, that because, I mean, you kind of framed, or maybe this is the truth of how to frame it, uh, testosterone and oxytocin are kind of uh, uh, opposites. Um, yeah. And I first thing I was wondering when I was reading about that in the book was, is it not possible to have both high testosterone and high oxytocin? Uh, that's a good question. It, it probably is. I mean, um, you know, they, they have dual effects. They both have receptors. Uh, they, um, you could probably have both high relative to both. In other words, well, it's a good question. I, I, I mean, some might say, First of all, there's nothing in biology that's going to be if one goes up, the other goes down in exact lockstep. There's always mushiness on things like that. But you know, if you think about it, like the classic example of oxytocin overriding testosterone is in men who are with a partner who has a baby. Um, so if if your if, if your partner has a baby, you bring a baby into the home, and she's breastfeeding the baby, and you're the father, like your testosterone levels down like that's actually and that's something that's been shown in in uh, animals and in humans where you're just not in breeding mode but your oxytocin level is going to be high in that scenario and and so you know over time evolution has produced us in such a way that that higher oxytocin is a is a favorable uh favorable uh nurturing environment it creates a favorable nurturing nurturing environment and one could argue that because of what we know about testosterone and its effects on empathy and and other things that um that maybe it's it doesn't create 
a, a nurturing environment to the extent that uh, uh, that the other ones do. So it's a great question. I don't I actually don't know the answer. Is it? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering now. I don't know how these chemicals are produced at all. Uh, is it that the body uh, uses some similar resource, if only energy, to produce one or the other? It's like you don't need both at the same time. Yeah, it's not that. No, it, you know, that example is is what applies to the challenge hypothesis with the birds and uh, and testosterone, which is that you know these are all made from uh, DHEA, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, um, cortisol. These are all made from a cholesterol precursor. So you 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 have cholesterol produced in your body; it's converted. That's cholesterol is a steroid hormone, or is a sorry, is a steroid molecule as four rings uh, that most chemists will, will know that structure. And you make you know little adjustments on the cholesterol molecule and then you might get progesterone or testosterone or whatever. And the, this is how the adrenal glands function in humans. And to some extent, these hormones are made in the brain as well. Um, but um, oxytocin is something that is not, it's, it's made in the brain, it's not made in the adrenal glands of the testicles. The main place where uh, obviously where testosterone is produced is in the testicles, which has the same enzymes that are that would be responsible for the for the construction of testosterone as would be for cortisol and other things. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and because I I I thought of this a lot because in the more esoteric side of the personal development world, like the yoga world, they speak about these terms like the divine masculine and the sacred feminine, like a lot of this flowery language, which. I would translate to t- testosterone behavior and oxytocin related behavior. Probably, a lot, sure. Yeah, a lot, a lot of the goals uh, for, in this world is like, can you balance both? Can you develop your yin and yang side? And I was wondering yeah. if this means can you regulate both testosterone and oxytocin uh, to have both positives? Yeah, I, you know, I, it's it's hard to know how we can consciously regulate these things other than. Uh, to try to put ourselves in environments where they each are nurtured, so um, and to recognize which system may be in control during a particular moment, um, and so you know, for a for a man to feel differently after his wife has had a baby about things is natural. That's evolution. That's that's your hormones, and uh, uh, and um, you know, that's uh, to be counterbalanced with. Uh, what might happen with uh, um, uh, people when they're changing mates or they're looking for a mate, their testosterone level is going to be higher. And um, and the data would suggest that they're more likely to be engaging in different types of behaviors, not just sexual behaviors, but, you know, more aggressive behaviors and things like that. You know, it's really interesting how uh, there's this, this book that was written 20 years ago um, by James Dabbs. I cite him a few times in the book, D-A-B-B-S, and he passed away but he was a psychologist who studied testosterone for like 30 years. And, um, and he had, this was before they knew about, we knew about the anterior receptor quite so much. And before we knew about the prenatal testosterone and things like that. So he just studied um, salivary testosterone levels, but he did this forever. And he did all these experiments and it was quite interesting. He wrote this really nice book called um, uh, Heroes, Rogues and Lovers, which I love that title. And, um, uh, and basically he, he, he documented the the evolution of testosterone in a human being based on you know different life events, whether it be uh, living in a fraternity house, or your spouse has had a part has had a baby, or the one that what was very interesting to me was people who are undergoing a divorce, uh, their testosterone levels are higher. Divorced men have a higher testosterone level than. Than married men or stable marriage, men in stable marriages, for example, and it just—it's when you think about that, it makes sense, right? Is—is is it? But you don't know cause and effect. Does the man with higher testosterone levels he more likely to get a divorce, or is the man with a uh, whose whose marriage is falling apart is his testosterone level rising in response to that because he's going to need to go out and be out in the world again, you know? And consistently, it shows that men who are partnered. Uh, have lower testosterone levels and higher oxytocin levels, generally speaking, than men who are unpartnered. Yeah, it makes me think of there's a there's a term in like a lot of the men's forums when it comes to dating advice called betacization. Like men fear falling in love because they notice they become more of a beta male when they're in love. So there's there's a community <laughs> that 
are very against that. They try not to fall in love. So they don't use their manly qualities. Um, but it's a thing that a lot of guys actively fear, especially if they go through a divorce and they find themselves not having the edge that they did pre-marriage. Yeah. Well, interesting. I would I would say that uh, trying to avoid falling in love is uh, depriving yourself of one of great one of life's great um, one of life's great events. But right. 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 about the causal thing too, because I don't know if I'm taking it too literally. Because um, I, I have wondered with oxytocin is when you see something cute. Uh, I've read that's you know there's a a oxytocin release in your brain. So if you're actively looking for things to find cute, um, like how literal is it? Like is it anytime you, if you, you speak in a baby voice and you feel kind of cutesy, is that releasing oxytocin? I think that's the oxytocin speaking for you, not the other way around. You, you, so there was a there was an article on this in the New York Times a couple of years ago, uh, and they the, the it was based on some experiment published somewhere, but um, the the researchers looked at humans with dogs. And they measured oxytocin levels in male and female dog owners when they were with their dogs versus when they were, were without. You know, you know. Imagine I don't know if you're a dog lover or not. I certainly am. But you know, my dog comes in and I give her hugs and kisses and 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 I speak to her in kind of a baby voice. My oxytocin level is probably going up. What they found is really interesting. Is they measured the oxytocin level in the dog owners, but also in the dogs. And what they found was that when the dog comes to run to you and you pet the dog and you're you know speaking to it in a baby voice and everything, the dog's oxytocin level goes up as well. Um, and so cause and effect, who knows? I mean, uh, you, you know, uh, I would, I, the interesting thing is, you know, you can take pretty hardened people and show them a puppy and, you know, they'll get kind of soft and, and, and you know, there's sort of stereotypes, right? Of like, of biker guys and whatever, they get little puppies and then, you know, they, that's that. That's where they concentrate their their uh, their oxytocin. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of this one uh, example from my life. I used to work at a company that was uh, very uh, it was very matriarchal in its structure. A lot of women in power, mostly women in the company, and it was mm -hmm. the only situation I've ever been in where, like, at work, people would talk in a baby voice once in a while. Interesting. And, like, a lot of the men. I noticed I became more feminine just because of the culture, which is mostly yeah. women. And I would talk in a baby voice, which I'd never done in my life. Like, yeah. It was kind of a weird thing. I was wondering, like, oh, has my brain been changing? Uh, yeah, well, it probably is. Probably was. Yeah. Um, cool. So I, I just want to say uh, we have a couple people uh, here now. If uh, you guys missed, if you have any questions, uh, just type in the chat and I'll unmute you. Um, so far, this has been great. I, I've, been, I've been looking forward to this and I enjoy the conversation so far. Um, we actually have a couple, actually, one thing I want to ask you about was um, with obsession. So um, the feminist writer Camille Paglia spoke about how there are no female Jack the Rippers, but there's also no female Mozarts. And um, she, she was saying that masculinity is something associated with obsession. And it seems like some of the studies you mentioned do show an, like a relation between testosterone and obsession. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that as far as... Uh, yeah, so I cover that a little bit. You know, I, 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 um, I, I was pretty cautious. I think I was pretty cautious overall in this book because I'm not a psychologist and this is not something I've been studying for 35 years. I, I do this clinically in men with cancer, but I, I studied this, this issue with autism and uh, that there's this theory of autism that's widely... Uh, debated called the extreme male brain theory of autism and this gets back to the prenatal testosterone and it's chapter two of my book and um, I, I highlight the work done by uh, this research team at Cambridge uh, England where they um, looked at amniotic fluid there was a there was a scenario in which women had had amniocentesis so their amniotic fluid had been taken out and was in a bank it was stored somewhere and they went and they found the kids. They, they called the mothers in and they, mothers who volunteered, brought in their kids at six months, a year and two years, and I think even older. And what they studied was like the kids' attentiveness and whether the kids did systematizing type behavior, which is a characteristic of, auto, auto, of autism, which is um, being kind of upset. You refer to it as obsession, you know, kids who are focused on, you know, they know every brand of car or you know, they, they can, they can, they have collections and they sort of focus on one thing, a, a specific interest. And what they found was that kids who tended towards that 
to use your word, the obsession to kids who were really, you know, sort of focused on systematizing and things like that. Their mothers, when they looked at what the amniotic fluid had been before they were born, their mothers had higher levels of testosterone. So it's that and a series of other sort of observations that have made these researchers think that autism is, is sort of, if you take maleness and you apply it to the extreme to the brain, that that's what creates this. And it's, that gets to your point. This is a nice quote from Emil Paglia about, about no female Jack the Rippers, but no female Mozarts. The Mo- Mozarts probably not the best example because that was, you know, probably somebody who's truly gifted. But, you know, you have people, I would say like somebody like, let's take a more modern example, like Steve Jobs with this sort of vision of, of creating something and, and, and his, or, or um, uh, Bill Gates, you know, sort of this, this uh, obsession with computer science to the point where they were able to create something new. Um, and, uh, and I think that that is potentially a testosterone kind of driven behavior. Um, and, um, and I think that, you know, that, that can be a good thing because it, it fuels creativity and it fuels understanding, fuels science and engineering. And, you know, we've created rockets that go to the moon and come back. I mean, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, uh, but it can also pull people outside of, uh, interpersonal communications too. So, you know, life's all about balance and, uh, um, and understanding this, I think understanding this for me has actually, I think made me a little bit better in terms of figuring out where I am on that spectrum. Hmm. Yeah, with with examples, modern examples, I just heard um, an interview with Henry Rollins, and he was speaking about how he, when he goes on tour, he works literally every day. He doesn't like days off. He's very obsessed with his work, and he Mm -hmm. also doesn't care about friendships or anything. He doesn't doesn't care about getting married or having a relationship, doesn't even talk to his friends. Like, he seems to be a pretty extreme. um, Yeah. Perhaps low oxytocin. Yeah. Um, we actually on the systemizing. I, um, one guy sent in a couple of questions. You can be on the call. Um, he asked, um, in balancing systemizing and empathizing, are there any? This is kind of an advice thing. Are there any habits, actions uh, that you would recommend to manipulate one's hormonal levels? Uh, you know, that's a great question about how we can manipulate our hormone levels. I think. I would come at it from a, from the reverse angle, and I would say um, the first step to all of this is understanding, right? And saying that um, you know, if I'm in a situation where my testosterone, my systematizing is required uh, to sort of understand that and roll with it, uh, if I'm in a situation where my testosterone, a higher testosterone level, is not going to be rewarded or particularly useful. To understand that, and there's probably, there's a guess, but there's probably a self-reinforcement that comes with that. You know, like getting to the winter effect. The idea, um, if you're going to go off for a weekend with a bunch of guys and you're going to play football and you know do do guy stuff, your testosterone level is probably going to go up because you're you are um, you know you're 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 prepping your body for that type of an environment. If you're going to go spend a weekend with your grandmother and some babies and and her puppies probably going to be a different type of an environment. And so your testosterone, your oxytocin level may go up. But as far as I know, there are not natural ways to, to long-term boost these things. Of course, working out and lifting weights will raise your testosterone level. Uh, that's interesting. There are um, drugs in development. I shouldn't even call them drugs. There's, there are ways to administer oxytocin that people are studying. And um, yeah, nasal spray. Yeah. And this is really fascinating. Um, I used to chair our IRB at US, our UCSF where we reviewed uh, human research studies that were being approved. And there was one in autism that I thought was really fascinating, which was there were, there were ideas that kids with autism might benefit from greater nurturing and affection from parents. And this was a, a theory that, uh, that, you know, um, that more affection will breed more oxytocin in the children. But what they did was the experiment was the mothers took the oxytocin nasal spray. And so the idea was to induce a behavioral change in the mothers that would induce an oxytocin change in the children, uh, which from a research ethics point of view is quite interesting. Um, and, and so it's not within the realm of possibility that someday uh, there will be oxytocin sprays. 
but that would be, you know, a potential drug of abuse, really, or a, that could be a, 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 a very challenging thing to see out there. So it's only by prescription. It's also quite expensive because it's actually, and the reason it has to be a, a nasal spray is that you actually have to spray the peptide. Uh, it's not a drug. Like if you take oxytocin orally, your stomach will just digest the peptide. So it either needs to be injected or inhaled or something like that. And that's, but, th but there are those studies are out there in autism and they show that, um, kids with autism and uh, even adults with behavioral problems become more docile, uh, when they take oxytocin. So I didn't answer the question, but, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but uh, there, that effect is there. Uh, it just made me think of, I meant to ask you about this earlier. So like, um, I'm an older millennial and my generation is accused of being entitled and all these other things. And I, uh, you know, like a lot of, a lot of things have been criticized. And one uh, thing that's cited as a reason is the participation trophy. Uh, yes. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that. And I don't, and I wonder if it's related to, I don't know if it's in your book, but um, I've heard the statistic that men nowadays have one third of the testosterone of our grandfathers. I don't know if that's true. I don't remember hmm. where I read. Um, I don't know that. That's interesting. I'd like to look that one up. And if, if you find that, send it to me. Um, I believe I read it first in the Four Hour Body, which is a fitness book. I could okay. be wrong. I'll have to, I'll have to verify that. Um, so, I mean, as a as a researcher, if you said that to me, I would say, okay, well, that's based on what data? Like, who has who has testosterone from their grandfathers? Number one. Uh, right. And, um, and, and how is that data collected? But I think it's, it's reasonable. I think that we, the millennial generation for sure, um, is a more empath. I think it's a more empathic generation. Um, you could talk about more entitlement. I mean, that's a, that's, that's been said. Um, uh, I think, uh, I, I think that the, and I do write about this in the book. In fact, this is sort of the one of the driving theories behind the book, which was that pure testosterone-like trait behaviors don't get us where they used to, right? It doesn't pay out. It doesn't, it's not useful for you to go to bars and get in fights. Being sexually aggressive isn't going to get you very far in life, right? It's, and, um, and so, you know, those are things, those are things that, uh, are, um, uh, are, are probably less common than they used to be. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of news about campus sexual violence and things like that, but I would argue that that's just because people have collected the data and are reporting it now, as opposed to it's actually happening. I think actually men are probably less aggressive and less violent than they have been in the past. Uh, and that generation is, is emblematic of this, uh, whether that corresponds to lower levels of testosterone, I don't know. Um, it could just be that the higher testosterone traits that some of us have are not being rewarded in society like they used to be. Um, by the way, just a great book, if you've never read it, not related to testosterone at all, is uh, Stephen Pinker's um, The Better Angels of Our Nature. It's about a 10-year-old book now, but it was about the decline of violence over time. And he goes through in painstaking detail all of the data they have about violence, whether it be wars or massacres or rapes or other kinds of violence, and how even though we think we live in a violent world, it's so much less violent than it used to be. And I quoted that book uh, a little bit in mine uh, and, you know, so much respect for that effort that he did in writing that book. It's a really fascinating read. Hmm. Yeah, I'll check that out. Uh, so Everett has some questions. Sorry, Everett, I just saw your message. So I'm going to unmute you. Mm -hmm. Hey, uh, hey, Charles. Uh, nice Hi. to meet you. Um, can I just jump in here and talk? Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm I'm really enjoying this, and um, I've been taking some notes, and there's a couple of different things going on in my head, so I want to try to talk them out. Okay. Um, the first one is you just said a, a a second ago, right? Higher testosterone doesn't pay off like in previous generations, where you could start, um, you know, working on the railroad and work your way up to become a, a shipping magnate or something by the end of your life. I think I think the reason that is though is not just not just as if, as if there's some um, evolutionary reason for testosterone not paying off. It's because the world is, um, not that the world is smaller, but there's no uncharted territory in the world anymore. You know, like back in the day when people thought the world was flat, at the edge of the maps, they would put, here there'd be monsters. And it's like people would go off to find and, and fight the monsters and, and sail off the edge of the world or whatever's going to happen. There's no spots anymore. We know, you know, just check out Google World and you know where everything is. So it's, so that being the case, it's like, how can we, you know, how can we, 
invent or create those spots for ourselves in, in the new completely mapped out um, HDTV world. Yeah, fascinating point. I I, I think that um, uh, you're you know you're touching on this the good side of the virility paradox here, which is testosterone driving exploration and discovery, and 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 I think that all of us would agree that that's that's something that you know if we look at our human evolution is uh, is is probably the result of a survival instinct that testosterone helps to breed to helps to to create. I would I would uh, push back and say that I, I think that there's lots of discovery that needs that is yet to be happening in the world. It's not geographic, maybe your point. That's a good point. Um, but you know, if you look in the worlds of engineering and science and things like that, where people are creating new things all, all the time, you know, this is nothing to do with the work I do, but I'm just fascinated what we're seeing people developing in terms of machines, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, scientific knowledge about biology and other things. And so I think that there's plenty of exploration that can be done uh, and, and plenty of ways that we can satisfy that urge uh, if we want to. Yeah, I hear that. So kind of piggybacking on that and going to a related topic, going back to the winner effect for a second. It's, it's interesting, right? Because it's not just testosterone. It's the relationship, you said, between testosterone and dopamine, right? Yeah. Okay. And so that's kind of mysterious. And yet it's also really specific, at the same time as it's mysterious, so it's like how how to find how to find the right sort of mysterious specific thing. Like uh, for instance, I'm a writer; it's my ambitions are writing anyway, as in plays, screenplays, that kind of thing. And I've you know I've always noticed that when I find the right words or the right phrases, when it's yelling, then yeah, there is totally that sense of like got it. You know, I hit the bullseye, and you know if I get a few pages like that, then later in the day I'll be imagining you know what it's going to be five years down the road when I'm being successful and I'm successful in being interviewed or, or whatever. And on days yeah. when I don't, when I don't have a, a few pages of the right words, then I, I don't imagine any of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I just eat lunch and get on with my day. Yeah. So, so yeah. How do you like, so you, you in that, that setting, so, so that scenario, which I know very well of like you write something and it comes out great and you're really proud of it. Um, that scenario is a dopamine scenario. You got a reward from that. You got a high off of that. And, and the, the, there's, um, and again, I'm an amateur neuroscientist, right? But <laughs> there's a, um, there's a reward circuit in the brain, uh, that basically fires from one part of the brain to the other part of the brain. And the, the chemical that it fires is dopamine. And if you, if you, in, if you put a cannula in a rat's brain and you inject dopamine into that, uh, you know, after whatever behavior, they will do that behavior over and over and over again. It's, it's rewarding. And there are many things that can reward that behavior, uh, or sorry, trigger that reward circuit. It could be um, what you just, it could be doing something you love, like writing or something you're good at, like writing for you. Um, it could be, you know, winning an ultimate Frisbee game. It could be uh, doing any number of things. It could also be taking a drug. It could also be taking testosterone because testosterone feeds into that reward circuit. And so... This is how you know addiction happens and and uh, other things happen where you you trigger the reward circuit by something that's not productive and in your case, if it's writing that's triggering it, that's a very productive thing. It's going to make you a better writer and yeah, maybe testosterone is going to be part of that because there's a the, a winner effect in there i would I wouldn't say that taking testosterone is going to make you a better writer though uh, you know but it's just that it's part of your complex, unique chemical mix. Um, that, that leads to that that dopamine circuit being fired. I mean, in the guys you were just talking about, the guys in, in engineering fields or scientific fields who are making all the discoveries that we've been seeing in the last few decades, it's you know what what pushes um a um um you know uh what pushes a successful scientist who who achieves the level of, of superstardom as opposed to someone who just publishes a few papers here and there, you know, lives, dies maybe has a, a nice family and friends and no one ever knows their name and doesn't contribute as much in the long run as right. as, as, as the people we do know and, and that we read and, and look back on after they're gone. Yeah, well, those those people are a rare combination of... Uh, I mean, I'm basically asking you, how do you um, achieve immortality? So, again, <laughs> yeah, that's my next book, so you have to wait on that one. Awesome. <laughs> cool. So we're right at the hour mark. Um, this has been awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Charles, for, for coming on with us. My pleasure. I'm glad uh, those of you who read the book enjoyed it, if you did. And um, 
uh, it's always a fun topic. It's a complicated topic because um, it's uh, it's so varied in different people, and it's it's um, you know the, as I said at the outset, the more and more I delved into this science, the more and more I realized there's there's more that we don't know about all of this than what we do know about all of this, and so conversations like this are revealing because they you know Everett's point about writing is a really good one and uh, I never thought of it you know that way uh and um and, and it just goes to show you that we all have our own different inputs uh on on this circuit and and what it does to us so it's really been fun I'm glad I'm glad you you got in touch with me yeah thanks a lot all right all right thanks everybody for being on um and this has been great okay take care bye-bye Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to catch the rest of my work, go to rwando.com. Catch me on social media, at Rwando, and please do not forget to subscribe.